This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, July 31, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we talk with Bethany Mann, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 3rd District of Missouri. We'll get with Bethany in a moment, but first, a message from the League of Women Voters. Be an informed voter. If your state hasn't yet had a primary vote, then plan to vote on that day. Missouri's primary is this week, August 2nd, by the way, so get out there and vote. Whether voting in the primary or the general, go to vote411.org for a nonpartisan guide about the candidates and issues that you will see on your ballot. Again, that address is vote411.org. And speaking of voting, have you ever thought your vote doesn't count? I sometimes feel that way because with all the money dumped on some candidates, it's difficult for the candidates without a lot of money to get noticed. And you know how it goes, those with the money get attention. And if you don't think the money makes a difference in campaigns, then, well, I beg to differ. Those who contribute money to campaigns get an enormous amount of power and influence, and they cash it in by getting better tax deals for themselves and sweet government contracts for their companies, along with other forms of largesse. The bottom line is that money injects corruption into our government. If you're concerned about it, join Move to Amend, an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. And one more announcement. We here at Democracy on the Move are setting up an online events calendar. It's still in its early stages, but you can have a look at democracyonthemove.org slash events. Democracy on the Move is all one word, democracyonthemove.org slash events. Have a look and see if there are any events in your area, events that you can participate in and express your concerns for America through protesting or meeting with candidates or simply attending an online event to become a more informed citizen. And if you're hosting an event or know of an event that you'd like to get on our calendar, send us a message on our contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact. So today we're sitting in a Starbucks somewhere out in the heartland, O'Fallon, Missouri to be exact, talking with Bethany Mann, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 3rd District in Missouri. We just attended a pro-row rally at the Justice Center, which is just up the road from here. Now it's time to cool down and talk about politics. So Bethany grew up in Forestdale, Missouri. She earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry from the University of Illinois and started her working career as an intern at the Environmental Protection Agency. Bethany is passionate about education, science, and bringing people together. Her goal is to make the 3rd District and Missouri in general a leader when it comes to important issues that build the middle class and strengthen families. She believes in equal and fair bargaining rights for farmers, advancing developments in our infrastructure from from broadband technology to roads, bridges, and ensuring that our students receive equal access to high quality education, fully funded public schools. 
So, Bethany, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. And I apologize in advance for all the background noise here. We got music going in the background here. There's traffic out in the street, but it's a beautiful day out here, so we might as well sit outside and enjoy it. So let's get right into it. Um, why are you running, and, and why are you running for the U.S. House of Representatives? Sure. Well, I'm running to make a difference. Uh, I worked on Katie Gebert's congressional campaign in 2018. I was her assistant campaign manager there. I did her social media, set her schedule, and we ran all around Missouri's third district. I'm from Forestell, so rural Missouri, so I'm part of. I'm, I'm from the district. My family's here. Uh, and and as I was in, as I was on Katie's campaign, we drove around and talked to people who had just all sorts of terrific, amazing, and also heartbreaking stories. And one of the common threads that I heard time and time again is their representative, who's Blaine Luke Meyer, did not speak to their needs, would not speak to them. Um, often he would lie to their faces about issues, and they just in general felt like they were being left behind by just politics in general. I think that there are some really important issues that uh, that Missouri families, particularly in the third, struggle with, and those issues weren't being spoken to at all. Now, this is a highly gerrymandered district, and I, I, I like the shape of this district, actually. It's very gerrymandered, and it, to me, it looks like, it's actually one of my favorite shapes because it looks like a big hermit crab <laughs> that's putting its pinchers around St. Louis. Yeah. It's about ready to squeeze the toasted ravioli out of the city. <laughs> And so, you know, since Missouri state legislature consists of a supermajority of Republicans, I can see why they set it up this way. So even though this is the case, um, Democrats actually held this seat, if I'm not mistaken, all the way up through to the election of 2012. And ever since then, it's been Republican. But it's not just been Republican. It's been like majority Republican. It's been a blowout. It was like 70, 30 Republican over Democrat or 65, 35. So what makes you believe it's going to be different this time around? I think they got overconfident in drawing their redistricting lines, to put it bluntly. I think that uh, the part Missouri's third district, especially in areas like St. Charles, out in Boone County, and even what you're seeing in Jefferson County and Gasconade, you're seeing more and more progressives move out to rural parts of the state. Now, I, I understand why they drew the district lines that they did. They wanted to maintain and preserve some strongholds. Um, Blaine's seat traditionally has been a very safe seat for, for Missouri Republicans, and so they, they want to maintain that. I think they got overconfident, though. I think there are more voters there. Um, there are some exciting things that I'm seeing with Clayton Herbst, the leader of the St. Charles County Dems. He's got 500 volunteers ready to knock on doors in St. Charles County. And then out in Boone County, that is a, a county that has flipped blue. And I believe that's added about 10,000 votes on the Democratic side. So th there is lots of reason to be hopeful. I'm going to rural parts of the state that have traditionally been 90% Republican, and I'm finding out that that's not the case anymore. So there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful and optimistic. And if we can do the work and get more people out to the polls, particularly younger voters, I think you're going to start to see a, a, a sea change. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is the reason that Blaine actually won a seat in 2012 was because he, he got um, drawn into a redistricting year. So oh, okay. it would be a shame if he lost this year. Yeah, it would be. Well, you know, I keep hearing the expression, a blue dot in a red state. But I'm not so sure that's really the case, you know, because I'm seeing a lot of Democrats out there in the rural part of Missouri. You know, Jess Piper, of course. Yeah. She's running in the first, first state district of Missouri. We've had her on the podcast 
well, quite a long time ago now. And I keep hearing more and more about, you know, Democrats being stronger in the rural areas. Uh, you think there's actually some teeth to that, though, huh? I definitely think there's some teeth teeth to that. I mean, if you look at kind of the rise of Donald Trump in 2016 and why it really turned so red, is it turned that red because people feel left out and, and left behind by their representatives, Democrat or Republican. And I think that we've seen that when Democrats run on, on the issues, when we have solid messaging, we're not talking about party, we're talking about issues that impact everyone regardless of their party. So for example, we have a really high suicide rate among farmers right now. It's, 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 it's terrible. It was up 9%, I believe, last year. Wow. And one of the issues that you see is that farmers are getting squeezed by big corporations who buy up farmland and put um, CAFOs or other production facilities. Um, they, they don't have to follow a lot of the same uh, environmental protections and requirements that regular American-held companies have to, and it devalues the farmland. Well, the farmer's kids don't see a future in farming because dad's really struggling to make ends meet. You've got the high cost of chemicals to even run the farm. You've got uh, you got high costs in energy, and the Missouri farmer is feeling squeezed, and that's well before you get to trade deals that don't benefit farmers at all. So the Missouri worker, in general, has had a lot of their rights and um, rights and protections stripped away and that's not that's it that's an issue that they understand whether or not they identify as Democrat or Republican okay. yeah we're going to talk about environmental issues pretty soon too because um, I want to talk a little bit more about what what the farmers are facing at this point um, but let's get to first of all I want to talk about the reason for the uh, protest that we we, uh, we uh, attended earlier, just a few minutes ago, actually. Um, There's a pro-row rally right here in the heartland. So what do you think is the most devastating effect of the recent Supreme Court decision to reverse Roe v. Wade? It's a human rights issue. So you have constituents who have had their human rights stripped away. They can no longer make medical decisions in their family's best interest. That decision now has been that now it's given to them by the government, right. and, it, and it's frankly wrong. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate sure. here, because let's look at the bigger picture. Is it a woman's right issue, or is it an issue of the sanctity of life? I mean, what do you say to people that tell you, like, hey, we really don't know when life begins? So are they really genuine in this, in this concern, and, and how do you address that concern with people? I believe that there are people who who genuinely do believe that they're protecting life and they're protecting babies. Uh, I grew up in a very religious household. Uh, My parents were very pro-life. My mom even volunteered at crisis pregnancy centers. It was the culture of life. You know, protect the unborn. It sounds really valiant. And growing up, I thought thought that too up until I got to to college. Um, And when you look at some of the history of the pro-life movement, it's rooted in some pretty nasty stuff. So it used to be a Catholic issue, and they didn't even believe that a baby was viable until you felt which um, something called the quickening, which happened between month four and six, and that's when you could feel the, the baby or the fetus move. To them, that's when life began. Other forms of religion say that you know your life doesn't begin until the baby takes its first, its first breath. First breath yeah. Sure. 
But the issue was co-opted by the American evangelicals in the, in the 70s and 80s, and it was co-opted by them specifically because the anti-labor movement needed an issue that they could divide, divide the American worker on. So it wasn't just abortion. They tried um, anti-pornography platforms. They tried anti-gay platforms. But abortion, taking care of the babies, was the one that really stuck. And a large reason for that is it sounds good. It's really emotional. You know, people have stories of, you know, everybody loves their children. I've got a one-year-old also. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a mom who believes that abortion is health care. And we have to make sure that people have that access to health care. But if you're dealing with the anti-labor movement, they don't want workers to have that, that autonomy. They want them to be focused, and they want them to be successful members of the workforce, and they want to be able to make them work and live in conditions that they dictate, um, the pay, working conditions, and access or no access to health care, depending on whether or not they're privileged. Well, you talked about uh, other rights as well that they tried out, anti-pornography and so on. Do you see the forces behind this push to make abortion illegal being emboldened at this point to take on different rights like LGBTQ rights or even interracial marriage or something like that? Uh, if that's the case, I mean, what do we do about that? Or what, what can you do about it specifically when you get to Washington? Absolutely. And you do see that they're emboldened. In fact, I believe that it is no accident that the Roe de the decision to overturn Roe came during Pride Month. That sends a very clear message, in my opinion, that, that those are the rights that they're going after next. The religious right, especially the conservative evangelical movement, kind of more of that radical right, this has been something that's part, been part of their playbook for, for quite some time. So it's no accident that this happened. Their feelings about women and the LGBT community are very well documented, and they have a strategy. And if, and if they can silence the women, the next they can come for the gays, and then later they come for, you know, meanwhile they're decimating education, they're decimating right. workers' rights, and they're polluting the environment. Let's switch to healthcare for a second. The uh, opening statement on your website under your healthcare section reads, I quote, Missourians deserve access to quality, affordable health care services to support their physical and mental well-being and to have financial security. So, in your mind, what sort of policies does that, tra does that translate into? So, there are a couple of them. Um, one in particular is it's, it's finally time to pass Medicare for All. I believe that health care is a human right, access to health care is a human right, and Medicare for All would do some important things, like it would remove the tie between you and an employer to your access to health care. Um, right now, the average Missourian pays uh, $8,100 a year just in premiums. That doesn't cover your copay or your deductible or all these other costs that you incur in just I accessing. Pay more than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's if you're lucky enough to have a job. I mean, a l yeah. large part of my district, they work retail. And if, for anybody who's ever worked in retail, sometimes it's a challenge to even get 30 hours to even qualify for insurance. So many people in the district are working multiple jobs and still unable to access health care. And Medicare for All would, would do two things. It would strengthen an existing public institution that we have. Medicare is an overwhelmingly popular program. Um, it, it is something that already comes out of our paychecks right now. Um, so it would strengthen and defend that. And then it would make sure that people ha have access to primary care, preventative medicine. You would be able to see a dentist and get your vision checked. Uh, have reproductive services paid for. That's something that Medicare for All could do. Yeah. Another thing that 
that we should be able to do is we should be able to negotiate directly with drug, our government should be able to negotiate directly with drug companies to lower the cost of prescription drugs. I've heard, I've heard heartbreaking stories about people unable to afford their insulin or not able to, just today I, I heard about a, a, a husband whose wife couldn't get the MRI that she needed because it wasn't covered on the insurance and what's she gonna do? Um, I, I heard, heard someone who lost their retail job and went to go pick up their prescription medicine for their depression, a debilitating illness that they'd had for, for much of their life, and they were getting a nice little voucher from their doctor. Well, when they went to the pharmacy, that voucher only counts if you have insurance, and since they lost their job, they didn't have insurance, so they didn't have the $1,600 a month it yeah. cost for, for basic medicine that keeps them well. And so they couldn't afford their medicine and their mental health suffered. And we have a big problem with mental health, especially mental health problems, especially in this district. And it, it should not be unaffordable to, to sustain basic well-being. Well, I get that. And I just have a thought here because you were on that topic of losing your job and therefore losing your health care. Do you suppose that corporate sponsored health care in this sense is in some ways, a means of corporations to squeeze more loyalty from their employees, or employees? Well, absolutely. I mean, how many people are stuck in jobs that they really don't like, but they need insurance, maybe not just for themselves, but also for their kids? Yeah. So it forces you to participate in a system where you are dependent on it for your own well-being and, and peace of mind, mental health and security. Yeah. And I think that Medicare for All would remove that financial, that, that, that tie. It would unfortunately be less powerful for the corporations and that's why you see so much pushback for it because they want to be able to charge you a premium um, just for the honor of working for them. Yeah, I, come, I sometimes think too that it could be good for entrepreneurs as well because one of the things that people hesitate for, they say, oh, I want to start my own business but I can't afford my health care or if I hire somebody, you know, just being a small shop, I can't afford the health care for everybody. You know, we're just getting started here. So that's a, that's a pretty good uh, pretty good incentive to go for Medicare for All. And you also talked about uh, reining in pharmaceutical prices. Uh, how would we do that? I mean, Medicare is Medicare able to, at this point, negotiate for uh, prices on pharmaceuticals? No, currently we're the only developed nation with any kind of health care, more social health care system that is, we're unable to negotiate directly with drug companies for those prices. It's different in the UK, it's different in other countries where medicine is a lot cheaper. Yeah. So one of the criticisms I've heard, and this came in light of the uh, Missourians that voted for Medicaid expansion last, I think it was 2020, one of the criticisms I heard was that it's going to further overwhelm the hospital emergency room system. I personally, my wife and I, sat in the emergency room. It was about two or three weeks ago. We had an incident. It turned out to be not anything, but we sat there for almost 12 hours. We got there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Finally, well into the next morning, we said, you know, let's just go home. And I can't help thinking that a lot of people make those decisions and they go home and have a heart attack or something like that. So back to the original question, though, was what do you say to people that have this criticism that expanding Medicaid uh, is going to drive up the traffic within hospital emergency rooms. Yeah, that's an interesting point because of, so Missouri, like you mentioned, Missouri voted to expand Medi 
Medicaid. And despite the will of the people, our elected leaders overrode their will. And as the result, by not expanding Medicaid, rural hospitals all across the state were forced to close. So that's what caused our our our, our gum up in, in the works in yeah. these hospitals is that the available medical resources were no longer able to get the reimbursement that they needed from these programs. So as, as a result, people were not accessing, accessing the preventative medical care that keeps you from having some of these medical emergencies. You know, you sh uh, an emergency room should be for a true emer emergency, not for just a, an ear infection. But when you have no options for healthcare and you have to drive many hours just to get basic preventative care, then it really does leave you at the, you know, at the hands of either a big corporation that's, that's built a big medical center and they can charge you whatever they want, uh, or you have to deal with a, a, a hospital that's getting very little reimbursement, that has a staff that, that's not paid very well and, o and overworked, and everybody loses. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's go to education. Uh, it's already known that Missouri is either last or next to last in terms of uh, pay for teachers. Uh, and, and roughly 25% of the schools across the state have now gone to four-day school weeks. Um, and they're having a problem recruiting teachers. That's one of the reasons why they went to the four-day week was to help recruit with teachers. They're still scrambling. And uh, Missouri isn't the only state that has this problem, too. So what's happening? I mean, what, what can you as a representative do about it at the federal level? Well, here, here's, here's the rub about education is, yeah, we're towards the bottom of the pack when it comes to school funding and teacher pay. And the trouble is, is Missouri does have the resources to increase educational spending, but those in power decide that they're going to reallocate that money for pet projects and other things. I mean, you see a, a big push right now to funnel public money for schools into into private education, which is just a way of taking money from a public school and putting in the pockets of very wealthy people already. Um, so what we can do is we can properly and equally and equitably fund public education and not just through K for, through 12. We can start by providing pre-K, universal pre-K, and also secondary education. It's something that other, other developed nations do. Our, our country is better off when, when we're educated and our, our kids are taken care of. And um, we can also do things like increase the quality of childcare, um, improve childcare education, and so that we're providing more support for working families so that, so that kids can thrive. What do you, what do you say when um, education budgets are getting cut? And one of the reasons I've heard is that there's pressure from the private industry, private school industries, as well as charters and, and private schools, parochial schools, that are clamoring for this, for the money, for the public money. Um, I mean, I question the legality of that, but what's, what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective is that taking money that's destined for public schools and, and funneling it into people who are already wealthy is just a further way of segmenting your population between those who have resources and those who don't. And Missouri kids deserve the best education. They just don't deserve an okay one. And every parent should be able to send their kid to a fully funded school. Another issue with schools is that they don't have access to reliable broadband internet. So even so, they don't even have the technology resources to make sure that Missouri kids can be competitive 
in in some of these jobs of the future when you when you start to get into you know all sorts um, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to work from home when you've got a kid playing video games and Netflix is streaming on the other TV the internet's pretty slow well imagine that if you're in a classroom and in a computer lab where there are 30 different kids using the same dial-up you can't you can't use the internet you can't teach kids to code you can't teach teach these these what are now necessary life skills for being competitive in the in the in the current job market so we're really setting up our kids to fail and we shouldn't be making sure that only wealthy kids are successful it should be anybody who lives in Missouri should have access to a high quality education regardless of their income social economic status or their religion it's a matter of, of equality and fairness so let's talk about something that is very controversial when it comes to education, uh, CRT, critical race theory, and wokeism. <laughs> and it's interfering with our schools, as far as I can see. But is there legitimacy in some of these arguments? I mean, how do you reach people that say they don't want their kids learning about certain topics at certain ages? As much as I despise Mr. DeSantis in, in, in Florida, I really, I, I kind of see his point in teaching some of these subjects for children that are very young. On the other hand, I understand that kids that young have those issues to face. So what do you see to parents that, that, that want to get rid of CRT, want to get rid of wokeism in our schools? Some of them are pretty extreme, I know, but I mean, just the core argument itself, what do you, how do you address that? Well, really the core argument I understand what they're saying. People have a certain set of values that they don't want the state coming in and trying to program different values into their child's brain. But from my experience, most ki most parents aren't that involved in their kids' education to begin with. So I, it's not that I question the validity of the argument. I, I actually just question the motivation behind it. Because from my perspective, CRT is a graduate level class that's taught to teachers that just have that just makes you aware that how you grew up and how you look at things is going to be different from somebody who grew up in a different circumstance. Um, it, it doesn't have to do with indoctrinating your children. It's just making, you know, making people aware that the lens that you view things is that might sometimes be different than the lens that other people view things through. And so CRT is, is funny because it, nobody heard anything about it until, until all of a sudden that's all everyone could talk about. Now I was, um, you know, this is a topic that I hear all of the time in all of these town halls that I go from Wright City and War to Warrington. Everybody wants to talk about CRT. Well, what was funny is a couple of months ago, I had a, a teacher friend up in Wisconsin call me and say, hey, are people starting to talk about CRT? We're starting to talk about that up here. And it's just, Yet again, another organized movement to defund public schools, to take money that should be allocated to public education and funnel it into the pockets of, of wealthy educational facilities, corporations, and donors. So it's just another way of, of building inequity into our system, but they're using teaching against inequality to make that point so it's it's really quite clever but you see the same types of people actively campaigning against it and you have to wonder well who's who's paying them to say that so yeah. whenever I hear CRT that's what I think of well who's behind that and who's actually paying for that because it's too much of a unified message for it to just be accidental I don't know anybody who's teaching sex education to kindergartners through third graders I just don't yeah. and if parents really want to be involved with what's happening in their schools 
I bet the teachers would love for you to help them volunteer sometime because <laughs> yeah, they're struggling yeah. for resources. I mean, I don't know about other people's school district, but there's a portal where I can log on and look up what my 11-year-old daughter is being taught. And it's just about how involved do you want to be in that education. And I think the resources are there for parents to be as involved as they want. And in fact, more of them should be involved. Yeah. So CRT is just something, again, to divide the American worker so corporations can can yeah. run supreme, reign supreme. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Let's move on to voting rights. Uh, you've identified several issues in the section of your website dealing with voting rights, including access to absentee voting, gerrymandering, um, uh, member a number of uh, number of signatures required for for initiatives and so on. Uh, same day registration as well. These are state issues, though, aren't they? Are, are they, or are they really federal issues? I, I, I understand your concern, but yeah. is this something you can address at the federal level? I think there are some basic protections that we should we should address at the federal level. I believe that it we should restore more local t control to elections and have there be less state interference. But we should, I mean, we're America, we should have some general standards for how our elections are conducted. I don't think the feds need to come in and monitor everything, but, but we should really recognize that it should be easier, not harder, to cast a, a ballot. And these roadblocks to voting are antithetical to the idea of, of a, a government by the people. So we should make it easier to vote and we should remove roadblocks and obstacles and also hold states accountable for when they prevent people from voting um, through gerrymandering or disenfranchisement or one of the many ways that people are restricted from exercising their fundamental right to vote. Good. So let me ask you this. Uh, there's been a controversy in Missouri as well as other states too regarding people having to identify themselves before they can actually cast a ballot. Uh, it used to be a signature was good enough, but the problem is now, I don't know about what it's like out here, but when I go to vote here in Missouri now, they hand me a tablet and say, sign this, and you have to sign it with your finger. And I, the last time I did this, I said, you know, this signature doesn't look anything like my real signature because I can't do it with my finger. I need a pen and a paper, you know. But uh, they, they just kind of shrugged their shoulder. They said, well, we saw your driver's license, so, <laughs> so then why do I have to sign something? But... Um, but let me ask you, play devil's advocate here, what is the problem with having <clears throat> more validation of voters when they go into the voting poll, into the into their polling place, and have to show their identification or some means of who they are so that we can prevent things, you know, questions about did the right person vote or things like that? Yeah, uh, you know, I think at its face value, it seems pretty harmless, right? You know, who cares? You should just show an ID. But the idea is that you should be able to vote without having to be charged a poll tax. Right. And if you go to get an ID, you have to pay something for it. Uh, um, in some places, it's not it's not easy to even get to the DMV. In some rural parts of the state, you have to drive 30 minutes just to get to your post office. So that's assuming that you have money for gas in your car, that you have the money to pay for your ID, that you don't have to work shifts that are opposite of from when the the, drive, the DMV is open. Or even if the DMV is open and if it's issuing the right kind of IDs for you. And so who's setting those requirements? Well, of course, you may not even have a driver's license, too, so that's an issue. But first of all, shouldn't the government then, to counteract this argument here, shouldn't the government say, we will issue free identification for you? Uh, we'll do it at the library or at the post office or at the DMV if that's where you want to go. I mean, couldn't a program like that be instituted so that so we have this, you know, uh, unambiguous 
situation where people go in to vote and we don't know who if, if they're the person that they say they are. Absolutely, and I'm a really big fan of of strengthening the post office and expanding the services that are available through the post office. One of them being the ability to not just um, get a, an a piece of identification, but also being able to safely cast a mail-in ballot from the post office. It's a, it's a wonderful institution. There's a lot of rich history uh, in our country. The post our postal workers do a, a tremendous good public service for us. Um, and we should strengthen and defend them. I also think that post offices should also offer basic financial services to strengthen the financial well-being they of the people to. in this community. Yeah. They used to. And yeah. it's really a shame. We've allowed, allowed corporations to set up competition with the post office. And it's gotten to the point where, again, it's another federal program that's on the ropes because we've allowed corporations to reign supreme. Would you consider eliminating the electric? the Electoral College, if at all possible? I know it's really wired in pretty deeply into the Constitution, but if somebody comes up with a great idea to, say, have a constitutional amendment or something to eliminate the Electoral College, would you support something like that? Yes, yes and no. I, I see the, the thinking behind it. Um, that's one of those issues that I think I might have to think a little harder on. Um, I see... I see some of the arguments for and against. I think the electoral system works the way that it should, but we also have several elections where the person who won the popular vote didn't win the election. Had a lot of those elections recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, but there also has to be a way to make sure that the rural parts of the state aren't aren't pushed out against the priorities of those who live in bigger cities. So the idea is that everybody's voice should be heard. And we need to make sure that we just strengthen and defend systems of government to make sure that, that everybody has a chance to, to have an elected representative who represents the will of the people and not just in the big cities. Yeah, on the opposite end of that, though, I used to live in California. There's like 40 million people in California. And, and then you go to Wyoming and there's like 700,000 people at the most. And Alice said that you know when you're living in California, if you want to vote three and a half times for president, you can do it legally. All you have to do is move to Wyoming because you get three electoral votes for 700,000 people. Yeah. So, I mean, there is there is inequity, and I, I believe that there is adequate, in this particular case, and there is adequate representation for people in the rural areas. In fact, I would say it's probably too much representation. Um, how about something like the Wyoming rule? Are you aware of that? No, I'm not, but the way that you describe it, can you tell me more? Yeah, it basically says that you get as, as many um, representatives in Congress as the least populous state. So in this case here, it's Wyoming. They have, I think it's actually less than 700,000 people. So that, that would be your criteria. So that uh, if you come from a very populated state like California or something, you have a lot more people per representative. Mm. So if they in incorporate what's called the Wyoming rule, they would say, okay, for every 650,000 people or whatever, you get another representative and therefore another electoral vote. The problem is that it would increase vastly the number of representatives in Washington, D.C., but um, there's no reason constitutionally why that can't happen, though. Yeah, the way that you describe it, I, that I wouldn't be opposed to something like that because the idea is for people to be rep 
to have their voices heard in a way that's representative. And I can see the challenge there where if you have three whole seats in Wyoming and it just accounts for a small amount of the population, that a larger state that has a completely different economy isn't getting their needs met and, and maybe unjustly. So that okay. makes sense. Okay. How about um, working toward the elimination of corruption, of yeah. big money in politics? That's a huge subject. We could devote an entire podcast to that. But do you have any ideas on that area? Well, I, well, the Missouri voters had a great idea, passing Clean Missouri. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what happened to that, right? Yeah. Well, once again, Missouri elected officials decided that they knew better, and, and so it, it eliminated some of those safeguards. Look, we need to get big money out of politics. Uh, one of the reasons I'm running is I heard time and time again that, that Blaine Lukemeyer, the guy who's in Congress right now to represent Missouri's third, that he will... He will only say what his corporate donors tell him to. So he will set up, sell out the civil rights, uh, the workers' rights, and any of his constituents, as long as it means that there's a nice pay, there's a nice paycheck involved, or a nice check goes into his campaign, um, his, his camp, in his coffers. And when you're a public servant, you should serve the people. You shouldn't be beholden to corporations and donors. Corporations can make as much money as they want to. They, they have a profit over people model that works very well for them, but they should not own our elected officials and nor should they be allowed to. So we should remove big money from politics and we should hold politicians accountable for when they take bribe money like that. I've often said that they should wear jackets like uh, like race car drivers put on the side of their car, you know, who's sponsoring them. Yeah. yeah. Members of Congress should have, like, really big patches for the people to give them the most money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of humorous. But uh, have you ever heard of a, of a organization called Move to Amend? No, I haven't. Tell me more. Okay. So I will uh, send you on, on, online, I'll send you a connection to them. But they basically are an organization that wants to make, I think it's the 28th Amendment right now where they want to basically, uh, in a sense, reverse what Citizens United did, but also everything before Citizens United. I mean, this whole idea of corporations being people goes back 100 years, 150 years. And they basically want to pass an amendment that says corporations are not people. They do not get the same rights as people. They do not have freedom of speech as people do. And therefore, they do not get to donate unlimited amounts of money to PACs, super PACs, or directly to the uh, to the politicians themselves. So I believe uh, Cory Bush is already associated with Move to Amend. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't reached out to you yet, but uh, I'll send you their information and uh, maybe you can take a look at them. Yeah, please do. That's something that I'd be very interested in because I believe that we need to get rid of like, big money in politics and that corporations are not people. I don't care what Citizen Uni- Citizens United said. Um, my campaign, I will not accept PAC money. My campaign is self-funded, and I and I rely on donations from small donors. But I will not accept money from corporations. There's there's there are always strings attached, and I will not represent a corporation. I represent the people. If I wanted to represent a corporation, I would go work for one. So uh, no dialing for dollars for you, huh? No. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about uh, I think which is probably one of your favorite subjects, which is the environment. Uh, being a member of the uh, EPA at one point. I, I think you have quite a bit of experience in this part. Um, let me see. There's this... Uh, uh, let me see here. I just lost my page. Right. Oh, here we go. So do you have any comments about the recent Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that would spend, uh, I think it was like $369 billion on tax credits to stimulate the adoption of clean energy technologies as well as mitigating the ill effects of pollution on low-income uh, communities. 
that, uh, that suffer disproportionately from this problem. Uh, what's your opinion on that act? I, I think it's terrific. It's a phenomenal piece of legislation that took a lot of hard work and negotiating to get passed through. I like particularly its focus on environmental justice and making sure that disadvantaged communities see some benefit from from adopting greener forms of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like the investments in green technology. I we're, we're but what we're finding is that, that coal and, and oil and gas are just not sustainable forms of energy. They pollute the environment, they cause massive health problems, and there are more sustainable, greener ways of doing things. We have solar, we have wind energy, like solar panels now can be made of a material that basically looks like glass, so you don't have these big, ugly solar farms anymore. Yeah. Um, there are all these tech, technology advancements that are coming faster than we've ever seen before, and coal is just an old out dated form of energy. Even oil companies know this. Yeah, yeah. And, and the smart com- oil companies have actually shifted to other greener forms of energy also. So they see the financial, they see the financial uh, writing on the wall. Right? Yeah, they, they, they see where the market's going and they're, they're adopting and adjusting too. Do you think this act goes far enough based on your experiences with the EPA? No, I mean, part, part of the trouble is that the EPA, like many government agencies, are are scarcely funded, so they lack a lot of the re- the regulatory enforcement that they need to uh, to to enforce some of these these standards. We saw that recently with the Supreme Court decision that strips the EPA of some of its ability to to enforce the Clean Air Act, which is crazy. I mean, if you look at the history of the EPA, the EPA was formed because there was a river on fire because of the poison from a petroleum company. A river was on fire and somebody finally stopped in and said, hey guys, this is America. You can't just dump your crude in the water and get away with it. But we see all over, when I was an intern at the EPA, some of the scariest conversations I had was with the intern, you know, I was the intern in the laboratory. He was the intern in legal and he talked about the problem of people across the river who had these exploding basements. They would turn on their light switch and there would be, (laughs) there would be gas that was seeping, seeping up into their basements and the light switch would spark and their house would explode because there was so much gasoline in their basement and so what would happen is the legal department would reach out to them and there were maybe five oil companies in that area but there was one that would never pay the fine and so because he didn't pay the fine the other guys did and then so you just have a bunch of exploding basements (laughs) we have to hold corporations accountable for when they pollute well, I agree. I th- didn't Lake Erie start on fire at one point? It was back in the 60s, I think it was? Yeah, yeah, that was around the time the EPA was formed, yeah. Wow, okay. So on your website, you talk about the environmental impact on farms. We're back to farms again, including the effects of droughts and floods and, and invasive species. And um, what are some of the problems that farmers are likely to face in the era of global warming? Oh, man. There are a lot, and we're already seeing some impacts right now. Um, well, well, what farmers are seeing, and one of the things that I've learned that it's, it's not really a partisan issue. Climate change and global warming is actually something that some, something like 57% of people in my district believe in, and it's because the farmers know the land better than anybody. They know that there are armadillos above 70, yeah. <laughs> Highway 70, and that never used to happen. You I never see, saw them. I grew up here in Missouri. I never saw them, but now <laughs> yeah. I see them. Yeah. They used to just hang out in North Texas, but they've migrated yeah. up north. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but what you see in the way of farming is you see these things called, um, you know, adverse adverse weather events so you see harsher storms 
you see floods, um, you see all these environmental catastrophes that our infrastructure isn't isn't prepared to deal with. We have an aging infrastructure problem in this state. The American Society of Civil Engineers gives Missouri a C minus and in some cases like in regards to the quality of the dams and bridges they get a D minus. Yeah. And the ones who who hurt the most when a dam breaks is a farmer. Their yeah. crops are flooded. Now their water is undrinkable because there's wastewater and fertilizer in their watershed. And they see some pretty significant impacts from droughts. I mean, we saw this recently. We had a significant drought followed by a bunch of rain and it, it causes problem with production. And, and it impacts farmers the most who now have to buy new chemicals to spray their their land with. The chemicals are not cheap. They're provided by chemical companies who make a profit off of that. So it's time for a change. We need to we need to enact a new Marshall Plan that ensures that American farmers always make a profit, that there's always a future in farming, and that farmers are allowed or the farmers are paid for sustainable farming practices and also for adopting um, ways of green energy. But you talk about eliminating loopholes that allow, you know, pollution by <clears throat> by agricultural corporations mm -hmm. <clears throat> and CAFOs, which are concentrated animal feeding operations, factory farms, if you will. Yeah. And um, you talk about strengthening the Clean Water Act, but what you're talking about here is going to actually cost farmers some money, isn't it? Because they need to put down fertilizer to keep their to keep their fields, I imagine, well nourished, so to grow the crops. Uh, probably a lot of it's phosphorus-based, mm -hmm. which causes problems downstream, right, with algae and excessive, um, it depletes oxygen and things like that. Um, I get that, but, you know, you're asking the farmers to invest a lot more on one hand, but um, subjecting them to price competition, uh, particularly by possibly foreign growers, on the other hand, uh, you know, people growing crops in other countries that don't have these limitations. So, it's a mess. I mean, how do you straighten that out? Well, the answer is to not put any more pressure on the American farmer. They're, they're already under enough of a crunch already. We need to make sure that corporations, particularly foreign-backed ones that do business on our land, are subject to the same environmental rules and regulations that American companies are. And also, we need to make sure the corporations pay their fair share. We shouldn't be shifting the burden on onto farmers and, and to American workers. If we would just tax corporations, like Elizabeth War Elizabeth Warren's plan to tax uh, corporations, pro a corporation that makes over a hundred million dollars, just tax them a half of a percent, and that would be enough to to reinvest into to the American farmland. It would also be enough to pay for Medicare for all. <laughs> That's how much ridiculous wealth we have at the hands of these corporations who, who operate and own businesses and land within our borders and who basically run very nice import-export businesses to get out of paying taxes, and that's wrong. It, it robs the American worker. And, and not to mention that we've invested so much money in, in wars overseas, and it's time to invest here in our heartland. We need rebuilding here. We, we deserve to have our infrastructure rebuilt, and that includes our agricultural infrastructure. Our, our Missouri farmers feed the world. The pigs that we produce, the corn that we grow, uh, feeds feeds animals, puts gas in cars all over the world, and in a market-driven economy, we should be getting more money for those profits, and not just corporations that hide their profits overseas.
Well, you talk about big ag, but in Missouri here, owning land, I mean, Smithfield is one of the corporations, I believe, is a primarily owned by Chinese corporations, but they're operating CAFOs right here in Missouri, as well as, I believe, quite a few of them up in, in, in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is the state legislature that's been very friendly to these companies, and they've written all kinds of exceptions. One of them has been, um, I forgot what the law is called at this point, but it basically rips the teeth out of any local county that tries to regulate the concentrated animal feeding operations and sets up rules of, for example, getting rid of animal waste. Uh, has to be like 50 feet away from any stream, 300 feet away from any water well. I mean, 300 feet is nothing when you talk about water seeping through the ground. So it's... It's not just a federal issue, though, too. It's, a, it's actually a state issue, though, isn't it? Yeah, and we run into the same problem. Federal and state officials are owned by big corporations. They should have those NASCAR jackets, too, so that we know <laughs> yeah. who's donating to their campaign. I mean, and you see it. Even in some of these just state races, you see tens of thousands of dollars being pumped into some of these, these reps who are running for office. And it's because corporations will target politicians who will just bow to whatever they want. And so we need to make sure that we have common sense legislation at the federal and the state level that address what the community needs. You know, I mean, it's 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 nice when a corporation promises you a lot of great paying jobs, but then if you have higher rates of cancer in your city because or in your town because of pollution, what good is it? Right. right. Point well taken. I guess we're kind of running up against the end of our time here, but I want to get to this point called the call to action. What can our listeners do to learn more about your campaign and and, uh, get involved in not only your campaign, but the issues that you care about? Oh, gosh, there's so, there's so many things. Um, so so if you go to my website, BethanyManForCongress.com, man is spelled M-A-N-N, and four is spelled out F-O-R, BethanyManForCongress.com, you can read my policy positions, you can donate. I'm a self-funded grassroots uh, ca- uh, candidate, and so I rely on donations of 25 or $50 to do things, print like, like print signs and print out literature. Uh, there are also other things that you can do, particularly in Missouri. If, if you're inspired by, by one issue, something that matters a whole lot to you, think about running for office. We have a vacuum of leadership in the state that just comes from people not having a Democrat or somebody other than a Republican on a ballot. And there are things that we can all do to work together to make sure that we're making meaningful change at, a, at the state and federal level. So that's that's what I would say is join me in my and join me. I'm always looking for canvassers. I'm looking for people to help out at events. I'm looking for for speakers too. So this campaign is not just about me, but it's about representing Missouri. So I encourage anybody come out to a rally, come out to an event, reach out to me, and let's work together to grow Missouri together because we're stronger when we come together. I, I've seen that as I've traveled all throughout this district, whether from from Gasconade County to down in Eldon, Missouri, that's <laughs> yeah. over in Miller County, out to Boone County. There are some really exciting things and there's a lot of reason to be hopeful and optimistic and the reason is is people are starting to connect and when when you see women and you know queer baristas and hardened union leaders all get together in the same place fighting for justice a lot of really interesting things happen and it really is kind of the worst nightmare of of um, cert- the, the anti-labor movement to see all of their labor and all the different factions and divisions they've created uniting for a common cause and we should we should stand up for the american worker 
Perfect. And that's, again, that's Bethany Mann for Congress, M-A-N-N, all one word, no hyphens, no underscores, BethanyMannForCongress.com. We've been talking with Bethany Mann, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 3rd District in Missouri. Bethany, thank you very much for joining us at Democracy on the Move today, and good luck in your campaign, and good luck in the primaries coming up this Tuesday. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.